From Hype HQ in Chicago, Illinois, Startup Hype Man presents the Goat to Market Show. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Raj Nation, the founder and chief pitch artist of Startup Hype Man. This podcast is where we bring you founders, company leaders, and creatives who are building it, who are doing it, who have been there and done that. And they pull back the curtain on their go-to-market strategies so that you can build a venture that you love and become the GOAT of your industry. Want first listen on episodes before anyone else? Subscribe to our newsletter at StartupHypeMan.com. You will get alerts every Sunday morning when we release new episodes. All right, let's hear how today's guest is becoming the GOAT. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from the greater Philadelphia region and currently residing in the greater Chicagoland area. She is the head of community at Lavender. Please welcome Demand Jen, Jen Allen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've never been introduced that way before. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) She is Jen Allen Knuth, as I mentioned, head of community and community growth at Lavender. What is Lavender? It is the number one AI sales email coach helping sellers everywhere write better sales emails, get more positive replies, and write those emails way, way faster with their smart AI coach built right into your Compose window. Lavender has taken the B2B SaaS world by storm over the last couple of years in just a short amount of time. They most recently raised an $11 million A round. And right around that time is when Jen joined the team. Now, Jen has a pretty impressive career spending a decade with the company Challenger, most famous for the book about, I'd say, 12, 13 years ago called The Challenger Sale, and then a whole sales philosophy that was built off of the back of that book. And Through her time at Challenger, she got onto uh, a lot of stages. She left Challenger. She built up her own personal brand, which I think we were talking about before we went on air. is just an amazing brand name, Demand Jen, J-E-N, Demand Jen. Um, Who do you want? Demand Jen, right? It just (laughs) makes so much sense. And then she she stepped into Lavender. But in that time of, of representing Demand Jen and then also Lavender now, Jen has hit a lot of stages. In fact, most recently, she published that in just a three-month stretch, she made $77,000 in paid speaking engagements. And if that doesn't send your antennas up, I don't know what will, which is why today we're having a conversation specifically on how to get paid speaking gigs. Jen, once again, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. I just adore you and I'm excited to be here and particularly to talk about this topic. I think one of the reasons why it lights me up so much, well, there's two reasons. One is if I think back to what I made in my first year of sales, I was ecstatic to make $28,000 in a year. And so this is money that is just kind of almost impossible for me to believe that you could make in a short time period. And so that's a really cool kind of full circle moment. Um, But also because I think for a long time in sales, I loved watching other people speak. Like I'm someone who will be the geek in the first row, like taking notes and getting excited and laughing at all the jokes. And it felt very distant to me to ever imagine myself on a stage. And so I think it's, it's a feeling that I'm just, I'm really excited about because once I got in it, once I started doing it, I realized it was an absolute rush. It's a great feeling and it helps me financially. It helps the businesses I work for. So it's it's kind of that sweet spot. To that point, I actually think we met almost exactly a year ago. It was June yeah. of 2022 at the sales assembly event. And you were sitting in the front row and I was sitting like patty corner <laughs> behind you in the second row. <laughs> That's right. And you wrapped on stage and I was like, I've never seen someone do this. And you lit that room up. Like, that's what I mean. When I would watch people like you, I'm like, that is so cool. So yeah, it's just. Well, and we share that, uh, that geekiness of sitting. I think the only reason I didn't sit in the front row is because all the seats had been taken by then. (laughs) I I am curious then let's, let's take it back. Like, um, you know, and we're going to get into this conversation a whole lot more, but I want to just, let's, let's learn a little bit more about you. Like, you know, take it back to 
12, 13, 15 years old when you're in school? Were you just, were you sitting in the front of the class? Oh, I was. I was a total school nerd and I was big into musicals and plays and things like that. And then when I went to college at Penn State, that all dropped off, right? It, mm. it was just like, you know, I was enjoying the college life and getting out of a small town. And um, so in a way, I think this speaking stuff brings me back to a lot of the things that lit me up as a, you know, middle school and high school student. I had this like reflection or inflection point seven, eight years ago, I think, where I realized like broadly speaking, the way I learn is by getting as close to the source of knowledge as possible. And then I was like, that's probably why I sit close. I try and sit up front at things or like, even if I take a yoga class, like I like being in the front of the class, not in the back of the class. And there, I mean, there actually are studies about like, you know, the further, the, the further back you are, the less you're going to retain. It's naturally harder to hear if it's not a microphone situation, et cetera. But, um, do you know, do you relate to that at all? Just trying to get, get close to the source of knowledge. So I've never thought about that way. I love thinking about that way. Um, I also think when I am sitting in an audience and I'm that close to the stage, I'm constantly mindful of what it's like to be on a stage like that mm. and look out and see someone that's on their phone or disconnected. And that's a feeling I never want to give somebody else. So I think by sitting in the front, it's great for me to your point, because it forces me to pay attention more just out of decency and respect for whoever's presenting. Mm, yeah, I know. And I, <laughs> it's funny because I feel like I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I having been on many stages, I am so kind, like same thing, right? I'm like, I don't want them. I don't want them to see, I don't want to be distracted, but I definitely don't want them to see that I'm distracted yes. or anything <laughs> like that. Um, when you, so you grew up in more like rural Pennsylvania, right? I said greater Philadelphia region, but we're not talking cities. I think it was Ferndale. Yeah. Um, you then went to Penn State, and then I think you you lived in Chicago until move, more recently moving to the Chicago suburbs. But you lived in Chicago for like a while, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. Um, I went from Penn State. I did four years in DC, then moved to Chicago in '08, and then moved to the suburbs in 2020. With the more rural upbringing compared to city life as an adult, talk to me about the just the juxtaposition of those two things and what is what is rural gen versus urban gen or city gen? <laughs> you know what? It's it's like I laugh now because I can't imagine going back and living in my hometown. Like I went to school, like my entire school was, I don't know, four hundred people, and. I could never do it now, but I'm so grateful that that was my upbringing because I look at one of our daughters, she goes to a school in the suburbs here in Chicago, and she's got like a thousand people in her class. And in a way it's good, right? Because it teaches you to be highly competitive and you don't get as many opportunities unless you work really hard for them. But I'm really grateful that my upbringing in a small town meant I could do a lot of different things. Like I could be in all these different sports. I could um, you know, be in student government I, and do public speaking things there. I could be in plays and musicals. And those opportunities, I think, built a ton of confidence in me. And it's, it's you know, it's interesting that we're having this conversation because I reflect a lot on building confidence as a young woman mm -hmm. and how important that is when you get into a career like sales, where like you have to be comfortable speaking up and to be able to get on a stage, you have to be able to sell yourself. And those are things that frankly, like did not come easy for me, but I'm very grateful because I had those opportunities younger in life to be able to start building up that sort of confidence. Let's use that now and dive into our main topic here, which is getting these paid, uh, booking these paid speaking gigs. Uh, like I mentioned, we met when we, we were both, you know, we were both in the audience. We happened to like turn to each other and start talking, I think, because uh, whoever at Challenger was speaking and they just happened to point you out in the crowd. <laughs> um, <laughs> When do you feel you got the bug to be like, I want to be the person on stage? Mm, this is a great question. I had blips of it throughout my career. Like there were one of my first speaking engagements was actually to like 200 people at a sales kickoff. And I was like, what am I doing here? This is totally not for me, but I loved it. Right. But then for a while it went dormant where it really picked back up again is after I started hosting the winning the challenger sales show. And I think it was because I was really pleasantly surprised by the reaction that I got from people. So, 
you know, I, obviously when I was hosting that show, I was talking a lot about my failures, things I screwed up in sales, what I learned from it. I was not out there trying to be an expert or like, hey, I'm the ultimate challenger. In fact, many ways I talked about how I wasn't a challenger and had to learn how to become a challenger. Mm. And so I was met with these people in my DMs that were like, that was so cool. And I want my sales team to hear it. And that was just candidly, like that was a really cool confidence boost. And it was a really, really like great feeling to sit there and say, people really like what you're putting out there. And so in doing the podcast, it gave me a much greater platform and much greater exposure. And that's when I started getting more requests. And then as I did them, I was like, oh, like I'm just chasing that feeling. I love that feeling of being on stage and feeling like you can connect with a big room. Mm. So hosting a podcast was a big launch pad to this entire thing. I want to take a step back for a moment with the people listening to this show. um, You know, obviously, so at least so far, we talked about how it's how it's helped your career and everything. But like, if there is a tech founder who's listening to this and they're like, well, I have to just be heads down focused on product development. Or I, I'll tell you, there's there's a decent amount of like curmudgeon VCs who are like, ah, don't get caught up in all the noise and stuff like that. Just build your product and make it good. Um, you know, what's your response to that? Like, how, how do you think just being on stages can actually influence a company's growth? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a great question because when, as you mentioned, when I came over to Lavender, I had just spent December busting my butt to book all of these engagements. And I was like, you might want to wait until March for me to um, start this job because I've got like 10 or 11 of these that I have to do. And they were like, absolutely not. You on a stage as an extension of our brand is a phenomenal thing for us because people that enjoy that experience will then be like, well, what's Lavender about? And so for us, it was really interesting. It just so happened that a few of the um, companies I was speaking at their SKOs, um, they were clients or in the pipeline. And so those mm. opportunities allowed me to go out and and not change what I was going to present, but weave into it the importance of writing and the importance of communication and sales. And so we got a ton of demand back from it. So, you know, it's... It, it's not, I understand if someone's like heads down building a product, like you've got to build a product, no question about that. But to me, being able to make a connection with that many people in such a memorable setting mm-hmm. is something a paid ad is never going to do for you. And I think that's what we're chasing, right? Is how do you create this really deep connection, memorable connection with someone that, and Lavender is a great story of that. Our founders have done a tremendous job of it. Like that's to some extent, I think why Lavender took off the way it did is because of leaning that much into it. I love that they said to you, no, we're not going to, we're not going to postpone your start date because you getting on these stages is an extension of our brand. And that's great. Like by proxy, it's great exposure. That is, that's forward thinking Foundership, is that a word? <laughs> Forward thinking leadership, I guess. <laughs> Forward thinking leadership, because I think there's a lot of leaders who think, oh, no, no, that's like a distraction. That's um, your job is to just do things only for us. And anything outside of that is, you know, you got to take paid time off for that, right? Like, right. Um, and so I, I think it's just really important to for people to embrace that mindset that like what your team does is really an extension of your, of your company's brand. And that can be harnessed in a really, I don't mean that like an insidious way. I mean, that in a really positive way, it can be harnessed for, for good for the company overall. So um, there's value, whether it's someone on the team or whether it's the founder themselves or the CEO themselves getting on a stage. You talked about the, the podcast that you hosted with Challenger being sort of like the jump off point for just having conversations that were, you know, in the public domain and from there, um, people reaching out and being interested. Did you, when you started the podcast, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that the answer here is going to be no, but I want to hear a confirmation from you. When you started the podcast, were you like, oh, this will, this could lead to getting, you know, speaking gigs, or were you just like, this is an interesting medium and I want to have conversations with people? You're, Totally spot on. I it was started before me. There were two other hosts. One left. I had just guessed it, and they like they were like, "You'd make a great host." And I was like, "Oh, this is so fun! I've never <laughs> done a podcast, but like, it was such an innocent thing. It definitely <laughs> was like this long term plan of I'm going to conquer the stages." <laughs> okay, okay, but it really is a great foundation. I, I I think you know, and I've experienced as well. Like people get used to hearing your voice, um, and that and it, they're way more likely to 
be interested in someone whose voice they're familiar with and they've gotten to know, you know, over the months, years, et cetera. As you know, you know, I also co-host the Sales Feed show on behalf of the Sales Feed Media brand. Um, we had you as a guest on that show a while back. And even in, I don't know what, six months of hosting that show, um, I had inbound speaking uh, requests come to me. Um, and what's interesting is like they they maybe also listened to this podcast or maybe didn't, but they were like, they're like, no, I've been, like, I've been listening to you like every week on this. And what's interesting too is, uh, tell me what your experience with this is, how it influences the sales process because they feel like they already know you. 100%. I mean, that was the thing coming from Selling Challenger where like, you know, there were deals I worked on for a year or more. And then I start selling myself in these speaking engagements. And it was like one, two call closes. And the reason was exactly what you said. It, it's Podcasting is a way for someone to feel like they know you before they actually know you. They know what you stand for. They know how you communicate. They know your, like how you show up. And so what it essentially does is it eliminates all the risk and uncertainty because there's got to be nothing worse if you're planning your sales kickoff and you pick a speaker and that guy or gal completely bombs like mm. that is that's a really bad reflection on whoever booked that. And so I think in many ways it's just almost like self-protection. I don't want to look like a bozo because I booked some speaker that like completely communicated poorly and nobody liked. And so podcasting to your point is a way for people to almost feel like they know you before they know you. And as a result, it was more so just like, here's our specific situation. How would you tailor this for us? Okay, great. And I'm like, this is the, why didn't I start doing this earlier? It's so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what would you say like is for someone who doesn't have a podcast yet, right? Like for a tech company, they haven't launched one. Do they need to launch like a full on podcast or they're like MVPs of a podcast that, could, that they could do? Or do you recommend like, you know, get a production team and, and make like a real podcast? Oh, I love this question. I don't think you need to go whole hog up front. Like you might find that's that a, that's a country him. term right there. Whole hog. <laughs> <laughs> the rural gen came out. Um, I think it's a big mistake because you get so lost in all of the production side of it that it kind of, I think, becomes this big thing, which goes back to what you said earlier, which is like, maybe that does distract from what you actually need to be building in your business. Mm. So for me, I think LinkedIn Lives, and granted, like you have to consider is your audience and your target stakeholder on LinkedIn for sure. I know not everybody is, but um, channels like that, I think are really great because the barrier to entry is like nothing. Like I always tell people buy a restream account. It allows you to, you know, shoot it out to YouTube and LinkedIn and Twitter, whoever else you want to do it. That's like 19 bucks a month. And then set up a LinkedIn live and do it consistently without worrying about. And I know this is like counterintuitive, but like, don't worry about, are people going to listen to it? Are people going to like it? Just talk about the things that you think are really, really missed by your prospects and your customers, the problems that they are under appreciating. And just do it because if we're looking for immediate success or that DM that's like, when can I get you on stage? We're not going to see it. It's something that takes time. But even just the practice of speaking about these things makes us better in other aspects of our business. Like, I don't know about what you think because you do this too, but like I became a better salesperson mm -hmm. as a result of podcasting because it just helped me be a more effective listener, a more effective communicator. And so it's like, if I just look at, is this going to be a success? Maybe not, but who knows? You don't really know until you start doing it. So I would say just don't focus on that aspect as much. To that point, one of the things that I realized with helping me become a better salesperson is when I, you know, I realized several years back and, and I've been doing this show for eight years now, I think 2015. Um, and, and it was a different show at the start, but I've, I've, I've been doing this, you know, this podcast under this RSS feed at least <laughs> for eight years. And what I started to realize with the influence in sales is that if I listen back to an episode, let's say while I'm driving, um, I don't know if you ever have this. And at this point, I don't listen back to a lot of the episodes just because I it's like, you know, I have the conversation and then whatever. I mean, I want to I make sure it's like produced well, but I don't necessarily <laughs> listen to all the episodes back. But um, when I do, 
I'll, I'll notice, like, I'll be listening. I'll like, let's say I'm listening back to this record. This is so meta right now. Let's say I'm listening back <laughs> to this once it goes live <laughs> and you say something and I'm listening back to it in my head. I'll start to be like, that's interesting. I like, this is my fo- follow-up question. And then I'll hear myself actually ask that follow-up question. That to me is like, oh, I was very much in the moment and paying attention to what they said. And that has helped me as a salesperson ask better questions to a prospect and kind of be that like, and I think any seller, you know, sidebar, any seller, if you're recording your calls, watch back the recording or listen back to the recording, you know, while you're working out, whatever. And if you, when you're, when you're working out, if the question that comes to your mind after you hear your prospect say something matches what you said in reality, that means you were being inherently curious in that moment. If it doesn't, there's a good chance you were like, you were worried about something or you're trying to get to the call quickly or trying to follow too much of a script. That is such a valid point. And I think, you know, I know a lot of listeners in the show are founders and I think it's easy to get sucked into this is what we do. And it's so cool. And when you have to communicate like a salesperson, which is essentially what a podcaster is, mm-hmm. I think that is a skill that a lot of founders could, could work on. Right. And it's, it's no, it's no shade, but it's just when you're building a business, you're pulled in all these different directions, but your most important part of your business, I would argue is your ability to sell what you're doing and sell the vision and sell all of that. And so all of these skills, while they played very well for, for me in sales, I'm not a founder. If I was a founder, I would have been like, this is such a better way for me to get better at this quickly. In addition to this idea of starting a podcast, um, you know, is it just paid request after paid request after paid request once they start coming in or talk about kind of the balance of doing the unpaid stuff along the way as well. Yes, this is a big one. And I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. Um, I think you could probably make a lot more money than I did if you don't do it this way. But part of the thing for me is I had a little bit of imposter syndrome because all the people that I grew up watching on stage were like, you know, PhDs or they wrote a book or they like won an Olympic medal. And I'm sitting there being like, I'm this little girl from Pennsylvania. Like I got none of this. My major wasn't impressive. Like, and so I think for me, it was a lot of imposter syndrome. I felt that I needed the logos and the experience to be really confident. And so I did a lot, a lot, a lot of unpaid things before I ever started doing paid things. And I think looking back, I would do it that way again, because more than anything, it built my confidence. And because you are giving, people give a lot back. Like I had companies that were like, we'll we'll video it. We'll put a professional video together for you. And you can use that to sell other clients, to give them exposure. That would have cost me a lot of money to do myself. Mm -hmm. So there was inherent value to me in, in getting that. Or people that would say, like, you can use me as a reference in your, you know, your pitch book and I will happily talk to customers. So I think there's a lot of reasons why doing unpaid things makes sense. I still do unpaid things. I've got two unpaid speaking gigs next month. Um, but I, because I enjoy it, it, it doesn't feel like a lot of work for me. Sure. And I think what's important with that is, you know, and I, I would say most speakers have done more unpaid than paid gigs in their lifetime. Because there's stuff you have to do just to get the exposure, the practice, um, the audience makes sense to be in front of, that kind of stuff. Um, and for me, I, I know I've done like probably almost a decade of, of a lot of unpaid things. And what's important to keep in mind, and more, more recently, I've got less in, or I've gotten a little bit more like scrutinous with where I'll, I'll place my time and if I'm going to do it for free or not. But I think after you build up the baseline, like practice around it, because that's also like, that's your testing grounds as well, right? It's, it's a lot like a, um, a comedian is going to practice their jokes in a basement nightclub before they take yeah. it to Madison Square Garden, right? Same idea. You can practice your material on smaller stages, on unpaid stages, et cetera. But at a certain point, once you feel you've got it down, I think what's important is to understand what is like the value of your time? And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to get paid every time. It just means you have to know like, what is the, I don't know about trade-off, but like the way I look at it is what, what is your currency in the absence of payment? And so like 
for startup hype man, I mean, you've probably seen me post this a lot online. Like we do these, these pitch workshops a lot, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we'll partner with different entities um, and bring it to their community. If it's the right audience, that's a lead gen opportunity for us. So like I've done a version of that and a more like grandiose version of it as like keynote at a SKO at a company kickoff event, those kinds of things. And that's, you know, I, there's more, it's, it's live on stage. There's drama, there's flair, there's rap, there's, you know, there's all these things that are involved, yeah. but there's like the webinar version as well, which is a little bit more, it's still fun, but it's like the, the webinar version of it. And it's not custom to that custom tailored to that group. Most often the webinar version is free. And what I tell our partners who are hosting us for that is, hey, in the absence of payment, data is our currency. So we want to, you know, as long as you can provide us with the registration list, I don't need your entire email database, just the people who (laughs) registered for this program. um, And you can get at least 20 people there. We will do this for free. And I'll be like, and if you, and if you can't, it's 3000 bucks. And 99% of the people will be like, oh, we'll do, we'll opt for the free version. Yes. And because it's a targeted audience, right? Whereas if, you know, and for, for us, targeted is, is going to be startup founders, right? Tech founders, seed to series A. If it's going to be a departure from that and it's like, um, hey, we want to, like, we have an audience of, uh, I don't know, like, um, HR professionals who want to talk about better communication to their teams. I have no interest in getting an HR client, like HR professional as a client for this company. And that's where it's a distraction. It's, it's, only, it's only worth it if there's payment involved. So understanding the value it's going to bring back to your company is an important discernment point. And I think for many years, I was like, oh no, any exposure is good exposure. And I think for a certain time it is. And then you start to narrow it down from there. I, I love, and that just speaks volumes to your experience and where you are, I think, on like the maturity curve of doing this. I got, I got like into some tricky situations last year where I was just like, I'm going to say yes to everything. And you're <laughs> right. Like, then you realize, like, man, you're spending every night after work building slides and mm-hmm. practicing runs. And then it gets to be something where I was like, I don't even know if I'm enjoying this anymore. So it killed the thing that made it like the thing that lit me up. And so I started being way more diligent about being like my my time has value, right? And I I remember there was a call and we did the scoping call. And then at the end of the call, the guy's like, all right, so how much is it? And I was like, it's 15,000. And he was like, well, we don't have that. And I was like, that's okay. That's mm-hmm. totally okay. Like here are some other people that might be good for it. And then the next day he came back and he's like, we got the money. And so it's like, even <laughs> things like that, I'm like, that's a good, like that's a good skill to bring into any business. It's just having that level of confidence and conviction um, in what you're doing. And I think the other thing is, and maybe this is like more, I'm more aware of this because the company I work for now, but Mm -hmm. all of our customers are sitting there saying like, we need access. Like the hardest thing is earning customer attention right now because we can't get in the inbox and we can't get on the phone and we can't get in their LinkedIn DM. So it's like, you've got this big shiny object over here to your point. That's like that those, that exposure has absolute currency. And if we look at the things we are doing instead of it to try to get that exposure, I think what we find is those things are way more expensive as it relates to time and investment. So like marketing and ads and, you know, all these things we're doing that take time and money when, you know, maybe, yeah, it takes some time to pull to build a set of slides and travel and go do these events. But I would argue like, it's just the time value trade-off is so much better. And it does take a trial and error to figure that out. Like I'll tell you, I, I mean, there are a couple of the events I've done in the past. It was a 10 person audience and the other nine people besides me were other speakers for that event. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I've also, you know, I've also performed a show, like a concert where the attendance was like five people and two of them were my, you know, yeah. where actually they were all just like our bandmates, like friends, like, <laughs> right? So it does take, you know, some duds along the way, but uh, okay. I want to ask you about um, figuring out how to how to price yourself once you're at that point. I also want to talk through like, um, you know, figuring out like your keystone or your cornerstone content, a couple more things. But before we get there, um, I just want to talk to our listeners for a moment. You know, we, we're talking about this idea of getting on stages and it can be such a fantastic vehicle to, in a roundabout way, promoting your product. 
And with that in mind, I just want to ask you, like, what are you doing on the product side, specifically the product development side? Are you yet to build your tech? Do you have it built, but you need it to scale efficiency as you're about to bring on a whole lot of new customers, right? Do you need to make sure you're in a position or you do need to make sure you're in a position where it's not going to break on you? Well, if that stuff is at anywhere in your brain right now, then Akeva is the software development partner to help you go from zero to one. So whether you're building something on the blockchain or no chain, web three or web two, mobile apps or SaaS, Akeva builds it at startup speed and enterprise level refinement. That's why startups like Stride Health, Pavino, Olive, Side, and so many more trust Akeva from their first dollar all the way to their billion dollar valuation. And they are here and ready to help you become the GOAT to market. Anytime someone asks me for a software development recommendation, I say, go hit up Akeva. Uh, just in the last few weeks, I've had two different founders. One of them tell me, hey, uh, we're about to bring on a few enterprise clients. Uh, our tech's a little bit janky. We can't afford to screw that one up. And I was like, okay, talk to Akeva. Had another one be like, hey, our app is only doing this much right now. We need to expand the scope of what it can actually, like, what the capabilities of it are. We got to build some AI into that. I was like, talk to Akeva, right? So any of these software development questions, go to them. And even if you're not ready to build the thing yet, they are such a great resource to just talk to about how to think about building the thing. So if you want to learn more, just head to akava.io. That's A-K-A-V-A.io, akava.io. Today on the Goat to Market show, we are with Jen Allen Knuth, the head of community at Lavender. And we're talking about getting on stages and getting paid speaking gigs. So before the break there, Jen, um, you had mentioned how like, hey, like you told someone, hey, my rate is $15,000. And then they were like, oh, we don't have that money. And then the next day they came back and said, okay, we can pay you. <laughs> One of the biggest unknowns in this world, because it's, it's kind of like a secret thing, right? No one's out here publishing, you know, these figures is how, like, how do you actually figure out your, um, your speaking rate? And it's something I struggled with for many years. I remember the, I think the first time I ever got paid to speak was with the first business I started. We did an entire afternoon. I think it was three and a half hours of like this intensive hands-on training with a company that I'm thinking about now, they're probably a 3000 employee company. And we were with, you know, we were with like a team on that company, right? Probably like yeah. 30, 40 of them, but they definitely had budget. And I want to say <laughs> for the two of us, for my co-founder at the time and I, I think we charged $2,500 total, maybe, maybe $3,000. And we were, I don't know, it was like 23 years old at the time, 24 years old. And I just had like, no, I, we thought that was big money. Right. 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 <laughs> because to that point we were on like, you know, me mediocre to mid-level salary jobs as well. And when you look at what you make in a year in salary, and then you're like, wait a second. I think, cause I think my salary at that point was like 39, $40,000. Right. I was like a year or two years into working. And I'm like, wait a second, $1,500 in a day. That like, if I, if I multiplied that, that's crazy. <laughs> right. Like, but really we, we, we took a loss on that. If you really think about it. So like, what are your recommendations on how to price and you don't need to, you don't need to give, necessarily give away your rates, but like, okay. okay and if you want to do that, great. But like, like, <laughs> how, like, how do you calculate it? Right. What are the factors you put it, you take into consideration? Yeah. So I had an interesting situation in that my last company at Challenger, because of the podcast, people started requesting me to speak. And so there was a speaker fee that we already had established for other facilitators that typically did this stuff before I started doing it. And so that rate was 15,000. So it was very, it was kind of easy for me in that sense to just be like, oh, of course, like I'm not going to charge more. It's not, it, I'll just charge that. And then when I left, I think looking back, I should have negotiated a little bit differently because when I had left, I already had speaking engagements lined up. And so I said, you know, we're not going to inconvenience the customer just because I chose to leave the business. And so I um, kind of like Challenger treated me as a contractor. And so sure. I paid you know, they, I got a portion, not yeah. a lot of that, but in my mind, I'm like, you know, this is like fed to me. These are things that are fed to me. Mm -hmm. So take it. Um, in retrospect, I probably should have worked out a better agreement, it wasn't <laughs> a very good agreement for me. <laughs> but looking back, we get wiser. Um, 
So coming out of that, though, I did have a concern around if if I'm not attached to the challenger brand, does my worth go down, right? Like, should I be charging less because I'm not speaking on behalf of challenger? And to your point, it is this like very secret society type thing. I was really lucky. Um, Sam McKenna, who's done, you know, lots of big speaking engagements, noticed that I was doing this. And she was like, let's go to dinner. I'm just going to tell you all the things that I wish someone had told me early on. So I'm sitting here like flying coach in the back, <laughs> just being like, can't wait to sit on a you know, flight <laughs> to San Francisco today. And she's like, you need to be like expensing business class flights. And again, things like that, you have no way of knowing it. If I would have put that in a contract, I would have thought that would have sounded greedy. Mm-hmm. And she was like, absolutely not. And and companies don't even blink at it because T&E is a whole separate line item to them. So she taught me, you know, one, you could be charging more than you're charging. I was comfortable with it because I'm like, it's still a good time value trade-off for me. So, I, and it probably opened more doors than if I would have had like a $25,000 rate. Mm-hmm. Um, I will increase it for next year, but- Inflation. Yeah, inflation, <laughs> baby. But like knowing that I had the flexibility to, um, you know, the way that we structure the T&E costs and things like that, that's why I've been very, or I'm trying to be very open about this because it is something where I think we probably have a lot of people that get taken advantage of because you just don't know. And it's very uncomfortable to be like, what do you charge for this? And what are your terms? And what's your cancellation policy? Because it's all mm. contract language. And that's why I think it's important that we have conversations like this so other people can learn from it too. Yeah. It's, you know, and you, you know, you talked to Sam McKenna about it. I, I've had a several conversations with Todd Capone uh, and he's been equally as helpful to me. And the, the, the funny thing about like, you know, you mentioned like, you're like sitting in coach, like elbow to asshole with the person next to you. <laughs> um, I realized, I don't know when, but I was like, no, this should be a business class flight and it should, and it's expense to them because they're not just booking you like, and this is what I, I'm saying this to everyone listening. They're not just booking you for the time on stage. They're booking you for the preparation it takes Whatever your prep process is, right? The practice runs you're going to go through before you're on stage. The fact that you're taking time, you know, you're taking a day, probably sometimes two days away from your schedule otherwise to just focus solely on them. And part of that preparation is making sure you're comfortable, you know, every step of the way. So if that means a flight where you've got elbow room, right? Where maybe you can lay down and rest if you need to on the way, right? Those are all important things that allow you to show up. And as I like to say, show up and show out once you're actually on stage. So, you know, I think a lot of times we laugh when like entertainers will have this like ridiculous rider. And I'm not necessarily advocating that you need to like demand, you know, lightly brown. Yellow avocados. M&Ms. Yeah. Yellow, <laughs> yeah. The Jack White stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> Or I think like Ludacris was like, he must have like a Game Boy with like with whatever, like 85% battery for some, right? Like some weird thing like that. It's not to that extent. And if you want to do it, you know, go for it. But it's like, look at what is it? I think we underestimate because a lot of us, especially as we're getting involved in this, we just feel so grateful for the opportunity and we like doing it. And I was telling, um, I was telling uh, another business owner about this. I was like, the challenge with doing work that you like is you are more likely to do it at a discount because you like it. Yes. No one who doesn't like the work will do it for less. Yes. You have to almost treat it like you don't like it. And that's oh how you figure God. out your fair rate. Oh, right. You are so right, man. That is because you're like, oh, this would be a really fun opportunity. Sure. Yeah. I'll cut this. I did that last year with one. And then I got there. I'm like, what was I thinking? Why did I do this? I usually charge for one hour. I did a three hour thing. And I'm like, why am I doing this? But it's because it sounded cool. And I'm like, this will be a really fun one to your point. So just keep all that stuff in mind, right? Like what is, what is the entire production of you being on, you know, may, you might only be on stage for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever it is, but what does it take to get there? And then what also afterwards too, because chances are you'll need to linger a little bit, right? Or then maybe it's an entire day of travel afterwards. All of those factor into what your rate is. And one of the things Todd Capone helped me with was like audience size matters too, right? Are you speaking to a group of 50 or a group of a hundred have different like tiers essentially based on uh, size of audience. So that's the value sort of equation of it. And I'm glad we could have that conversation. Um, can you talk me through like 
the content of your of your talk or talks themselves. Um, like, how important is it to have like, would you call it pillar content or anchor content, or or is it more like just do something custom every time? Oh my gosh, I could not do something custom every time. Just the the sheer life soul suckery of creating slides, like it <laughs> kill, it kills me. I like it's the least favorite part for me about it, and so. One of the things that I'm very um, intentional about is to be known for something or some things, but a, a small set of those things. And then instead of customizing everything, it's just tailoring it, right? It's like, I want to be able to speak in a language that feels like it relates. So one of the things I talk a lot about is um, overcoming customer status quo. I essentially have the same set of slides, maybe with some additions, but I'll intentionally tailor things. Like when we talk about big logos, we're trying to win, for example, at this business, I'll put their logos on the screen. It's little things like that, that I think make it feel tailored without having to do a complete uphaul or rehaul of like all of your slides. Cause that's mm-hmm. where it, it kind of gets like, like I said, soul destroying. Um, but then I'll also be really intentional about asking for examples. So when I talk about status quo, I'm like, all right, Let's talk about your pipeline. What was a deal that looked like it was going to close and didn't? And I'll use that as my example Mm -hmm. when I'm defining status quo, because people can relate to things that they know and understand more effectively than concepts that they can't, right? So early on in the presentation, I'm very intentional about like, from what I understand, we had a big opportunity with 3M and then all of a sudden it goes to, that's what we're talking about today. And it just allows people, I think, to like really deeply connect with what you're talking about. I also think if you are going to do custom, that's an upcharge, right? That, like, there's a custom fee for it. It's similar to like if you were doing a project of any other kind, right? If it's a custom project, it's going to require a customization fee. I like that. I like how you make all these parallels to other things. And it's like, you think it's like, oh, it's this really specific thing. But as you're talking, I'm like, yes, that's true. That's true. That's we're, true. We're, you know, we're, we're marketing a product or we are, we're offering a product to people. And uh, to that you know, to that note, like, and coming back to the entertainment uh, sort of parallel or mindset, you know, where I'll say like, don't, don't demand yellow M&Ms. Conversely, like, I, you know, I used to have this um, concern over like, oh, this company's going to feel shortchanged because they got, you know, they might, they might see I posted online and then another week later, I'm doing the same similar content for another company. They're going to be like, what the heck? You gave us the same thing you gave them? Listen, when, um, Beyonce plays Soldier Field, and then two nights later, she's selling out SoFi Stadium. No one is like, wait a second, you played the same show in Chicago <laughs> that you played in LA? Oh, we want our money back. In fact, they'll, they'll pay a premium because they know the set is good. <laughs> yes, such a good point. I've, like, I've been raving. I went to a Coldplay concert at Soldier Field last year, and my husband and I went on Friday night. We woke up on Saturday and we're like, we got to go again. Right. And we took the kids. <laughs> we went to the exact same show. And I'm like that, if that doesn't kind of validate your point, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So um, in figuring out what that anchor content is, you know, you, you've, you've written about recently the importance of like having a point of view and getting people to buy into that, to then get these gigs and everything. Can you just, can you expand on what you mean when you say point of view and how to project that? Yeah, I think this one's really important. I'm not saying it's the right way. It's just in my opinion, I think it's important to have some sort of niche, especially in the space that I play, which is sales. There's a lot of fluff out there. Like, so if I hear one more person be like, you got to deliver value in the first call, it's like, of, of course, of course, I have to deliver value. It's not like I'm intentionally seeking to not deliver value. <laughs> to so I think value. Take, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> So I think it's really important and I think it's where it's easier to stand out is if you have a point of view that um, contradicts the way something's always been done, right? So and this is, I'm, I'm absolutely certain this is influenced by the time I spent at Challenger. But when you think about things that you want to share, it's either because they make you look smart or they make you look funny, right? And so half the battle is just getting people to share your point of view And that's why I spend as much time on LinkedIn as I do is because if you can get really crystal clear and effective at writing about your point of view, other people share it because they're like, oh, by sharing this, this makes me look smart. Mm -hmm. And so I think it just by nature of talking about a smaller set of things in many different ways, you just get so much deeper on that topic and you start to be known for something. I think my boss, Will Allred, 
has done a phenomenal job at this, right? Like we laugh about it. I'm like, you write about cold email every single day. I like, how do you do that? How do you come <laughs> up with enough stuff? And he's like, trust me, it's hard, but it forces me to be more thoughtful about what I'm talking about. So I don't sound like a broken record. Part of that, an extension of that, I think is like, how, how broad or narrow do you go with this point of view and with the content you'll post to get people into your sphere or ecosystem in the first place that will help you get on stages, right? What is that balance between? Because I, I asked that because I feel like a lot of companies on their come up, they are afraid of shutting out certain customers if they are too specific. So what's your advice here for specificity versus generic or broadness? Oh, that's such a good question. And again, this is just my opinion, but I would rather mean a lot to a fewer people, to fewer people than mean a little to a lot of people, right? Like what you really want are people that are super passionate and like root for you and support you. And I just don't think you get that when you water down your topics to meet, you know, to, to avoid any skepticism from anyone whatsoever. Could you maybe give an example of what sounds like broad versus what sounds like specific? And you can use even, you know, your own content as an example. Yeah. So I think one of the things that you'll hear a lot and we hear a lot is in being in sales is people will get up and talk about consultative selling, right? And it's like, you need to go in and you need to consult the customer and you need to ask them about their needs. And this has largely been accepted since the early 2000s when people started moving away from product selling. I would struggle to think of someone that I think is exceptional it's speaking about that topic because it's such a watered down generalized topic mm. versus what I tried to do in my area was say, let's take a competitor people aren't thinking a lot about, which is status quo. We're all thinking about how do we be better than the next guy or gal that we're competing against, but we tend to neglect how much we actually lose to status quo as a competitor. So let's talk about instead of consultative selling, let's get really specific around how you could defeat a competitor that we're underappreciating, which is status quo. Like that is way, way smaller because you might have companies say, well, we don't lose to status quo. Cool. You're not my audience. Like I'm okay with that. So it's, I think it's an example of you will alienate some people, but other people who are like, man, that's where most of my deals go to die will be so much more lit up by that versus let's all be consultative sellers. Mm, mm. So you start with a certain category of information. And within that, it's like, okay, what's my stance on that thing? And within that stance, like, how do I, how do I frame that as well? Exactly. Like polarizing stances, you, it takes courage, I think, to have them because you have to be prepared for people to disagree with you, but you want that, right? Like it's almost like I equate it to LinkedIn posts where everyone's like, yeah, good idea. Great. Like you scroll past them because you're like, okay, this doesn't make me really think or feel anything. I think that like what we're chasing is making someone think, feel, re-examine conventional wisdom that they've held to be true. That sparks something. And that's where I think you can grab attention. And anyone who's founding a business, I would assume has founded this business because they believe passionately that there is a problem people aren't solving in the right way. So I think when you can get really tight on what your unique point of view is and share that consistently in many different ways through many different formats, like that's how you get people lit up about you and what you're trying to do. I want to ask you one or two quick questions about being on stage itself, and then we'll go to our wrap up. So someone gets, a, you know, they get a speaking gig, right? They're preparing and everything. What are any like tips or tricks that you have when you're actually on stage for making sure you're going to do a good job and, and keep the audience engaged and, you know, giving you a standing O at the end of it? Yeah. Um, I'll speak about what I didn't do and then why that made me do sure. things differently. The first, I remember the first time I did one of these, a paid one, I was like, I have to make this so full of value. And it was like, I had the media slides. I had like, there was no humor. There was no like relatable moments because I had that imposter syndrome that was making me think you have to show them like you're there for a reason. Sure. So my presentation was actually really probably pretty boring. Like I actually feel pretty bad for these people. <laughs> it's like, it was very smart, but not terribly. But what I've learned is actually your material, your message lands far more effectively when you break up 
these moments. This is something I think you do phenomenally well. Like you have to, to a certain extent, like you are on a stage, you have to entertain. And so for me, like I will poke fun at myself. I will play around with the audience and ask someone a question and mess around with their answer. And it's like, when you get that laugh, I I know you feel this too. It's like, you can almost feel the audience warming up to you. So I think now I try to be way less rigid and I don't want to say professional, but in a way professional, like I'm building memes into my slides. Like I'm, you know, using funny examples in our personal life instead of just only looking at work examples, like analogies, I think are a really powerful thing. And so as I've done more of them, what I've noticed is the places where I get a lot of raving fans are the ones where I'm just being a human being and stop trying to be this version of a professional speaker that I had in my mind. A couple episodes ago, we had um, Melissa Rosenthal, the chief creative officer, oh, click up as a guest, and she was talking. That conversation was around brand differentiation, and one of the things she mentioned was that ClickUp, ClickUp has decided as a brand, like their brand voice is the heroic jester. And what you're saying here, I think, is similar. It's like figure out, you know, what's your company brand voice, and then by extension, what's your personal brand voice within that, um, and. It feels, I don't know if heroic gesture is like what, you know, is what your thing is, but it's like, you know, you are intentionally layering relatability by, by having memes and comedy stuff in there as well. I think for me, as I thought about that the other day, I was like, or as I'm hearing you, I'm like, maybe my onstage, and this is really everywhere, but uh, my onstage stuff is like, I think what I'm trying to do is be your best friend who you also look up to. I don't mean that in like a status way. I mean that in like yeah. a, like an inspiring way. I uh, love not the best that. friend who brings you down, the best friend who lifts you up, that kind of thing. And you can joke with your best friend. You can get real with your best friend. You can take advice from your best friend. That's what, you know, I think I try and bring when I'm on the stage. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of just brought that concept to you like just now, but as you hear that, and as you hear the heroic gesture thing from ClickUp, do you have a term or a phrase you would say you would position yourself as? Yeah. Um, first of all, I love that. I, and it's like such a deeply emotional thing, which I think is another underappreciated thing. So I love yours. I would say the thing that I talk a lot about is the struggle to be someone who didn't see themselves as a salesperson to becoming one. And I think what I hear more often than not, it's the relatability. It's like, I'm not standing on a stage and saying, I'm the best salesperson in the world and here's what I do. And if you want to be successful, listen to me. In fact, more often than not, I'm talking about my failures. I used to do something like this. This is why I believed it was the right way. This is what I learned. And now this is what I do differently. And I think it's like, I want to be a a sign that you don't have to all have all of your things figured out, but you can still get better. And it's okay to be vulnerable about what's hard because you can't get better unless you talk about what's hard. So mm. I think that would probably be it for me. I love that. I love that. Now, the last point I want to touch on here and I want to get your opinion on is, you know, more recently I started to realize this. Um, so back in January of this year, this is we're in 2023, right? Yeah. So 2023, January, <laughs> um, I did an SKO in beautiful Bonita Springs, Florida with a company called MRI Software. They're a real estate technology company. Um, and I had a moment and, you know, I was there the day before because we did the, we did the practice run through and then the talk was the next day. Um, I had this moment where and I realized because we get conditioned by what we've seen ahead of us. And in early in my career, I had known like my boss to be the one who, when they travel, every second of traveling, they're also working. Like when they're like when they're doing business travel, right? Because it's like a loss of productivity if you're not. And I got the things I needed to get done because I did have things to get done. And then I was like, I can, I'm also allowed to enjoy myself while I'm here. I don't need to be on email until 11 PM just because I happen to be not at my home right now. And I, I think this is important because I just think we tend to default to if you're outside of the scope of regular work, you have to be filling every possible extra amount of time you have with work. Cause it's like you're cheating yourself or it's you feel guilty And I literally, I was like, why am I feeling guilty about this? No, I can have a nice dinner. I don't need to be like eating on the hotel bed. (laughs) 
you know, I can actually go to this restaurant. I can like relax. Right. And if you have time, like get a massage, those kinds of things. I didn't have time to get a massage, but like, you get the point, right? Like it doesn't have to be just cause you traveled somewhere to speak again. If you have stuff to get done, get it done, but don't do it. Cause you feel guilty that you're now away from your desk. Quote unquote. Have you had any like relationship with that issue? Oh my gosh. I can't think of a time prior to this year where I wasn't eating my dinner on my hotel bed. Like when you said that, I was like, yes, that's so it because you're right. It's a guilt. Like, oh, I get to go to this cool place. And sometimes the places you go to suck, but sometimes they're actually really nice and and beautiful. Right. And you're like, this is really cool. So I was at um, an SKO last month in Tampa and I was like picking up the phone to do the delivery. And I was like, what am I doing? Like I I live in Chicago. I haven't seen the sun in three months. I'm in a sunny place, Mm. go out and have dinner and like, just go out by yourself. And it was so rewarding. And as a result, I feel like this goes back to what you're saying earlier. I feel like I showed up better the next day because I did something to sort of treat myself and enjoy myself. And that happiness bleeds into the presence that we bring onto that stage. So I totally struggle with it. Like it's the guilt, but I'm trying to be much more intentional. And actually you and I, like not that long ago, like I was DMing you about boundary setting, right? And like, Mm. how do you do it? And I think that's where it's also really important for people that are doing this work to have conversations with others that are doing it because you shared so many helpful things. And it also was just like, okay, it's okay to set a boundary. A lot of times we just question, is this okay or is it not? And just by virtue of someone else saying it is okay, gives us more confidence to to lean into things like that. Now now that I'm remembering that we had that conversation through DMs, you were the person who I mentioned the thing about we, when we like work, when we like the work, yeah. we do, <laughs> I, I spoke about it earlier in this conversation as if I was speaking to someone else about it, but it was actually, it was you who I brought that point up to. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing if not consistent. All right, let's hit our wrap up now. First off, Jen, where can our listeners find you and learn more about you and about Lavender? I mentioned it, LinkedIn, Jen Allen Knuth. I spend a lot of time on there. Um, so that's my my sweet spot. I've only ever done one TikTok video and I just joined Twitter and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to stay or not. So <laughs> LinkedIn is the place. <laughs> and you can find her by searching Demand Jen, actually. LinkedIn.com <laughs> slash in slash Demand Gen 1. Um, that's weird. There's a Demand Gen 0 or a Demand Gen. I was so upset. I'm like, who are you? How do I get what you have? Give it to me. Um, Jen, who is one person who you want to shout out who's been helpful and influential in your journey? Yeah, I'm going to, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Sam McKenna, just the most selfless, generous person with opening up um, what was hard for her, what mistakes she wouldn't make again, and just proactively doing it. I didn't have to go to her. I think that just speaks volumes to the person that she is. We'll now do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. The topic today was how to get paid speaking gigs. Um, We had a lot of good stuff that we shared today. Um, One thing I want people to take away from this is don't wait for others to invite you to their stage. Create your own stage if you want to get on other stages. Jen. Top one or two lessons or takeaways? I would say do not worry about whether you will be successful or not. Find every opportunity you can to speak about the problem that you solve in places where people may listen. And if they don't listen, that's still okay because you're getting better at talking about it, which will only help you in all other aspects of the business. My final question, which is how we end every episode of this show Fill in the blank, Jen. Entrepreneurship is blank. I'll say admirable. Um, <laughs> like just watching and joining a startup and seeing what our founders hearing the stories that they went through. Like, it's not for me, but I admire the hell out of people who do it. <laughs> you had it though, right? With, with the three months of demand, Jen, before. True. True. It's a little different. It's a little different than standing up a business. So I got to give credit where credit's due. Well, I've got a million more questions I want to ask Jen. And if you've been listening to this and she said something that sparked an idea in your head and you want to follow up with her, 
Good news is that the conversation doesn't end here. Jen's going to be stepping inside of Goat to Market Club. That's our online founder community and doing an Ask Me Anything for the whole first week that this episode is live. So to join, head to startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. You can hop in and ask Jen any questions around getting on stage, around her expertise in cold emailing, around how is it that through 90% of this episode, there was a dog with a fluffy tail behind her. And then all of a sudden, Randomly, the dog turned into a dark color with short hair, and I didn't even need to see the first dog leave. You can ask her about that if you want to. So anything's on the table. Don't ask me anything that's happening inside our founder community, Goat to Market Club. You can join for free, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. Jen Allen, thank you once again for joining us today on the Goat to Market show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you again to our guests for joining and sharing their knowledge. Did you like what you heard? Well, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app before you head out of here. And while you're at it, who's one friend who you think would find value in hearing today's conversation? Go ahead and share the episode with them. I would really appreciate it. And I thank you for doing that. Remember, we've got more going down with our guest inside Goat to Market Club. Think of it like the after show, the after party, the after hours special. Our guest is going to hop inside the club and do an Ask Me Anything. So you can follow up with any of those questions that came to mind as you were listening. You can follow up and ask them to our guest inside our club. To join, just head to startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. GTM Club is $9 a month, but your first month is free. You can cancel any time, and you're not only getting the AMAs, you're also getting our monthly strategy drops that are for members only, where we're teaching hyper-specific tactical go-to-market strategies, plus cool member-to-member interactions and other bonus resources. All of that happens inside the club. So again, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. We'll see you inside the club and we'll see you next week. But before you head out, remember, why be a unicorn when you can be the GOAT?